Well, good afternoon, um, and welcome to the Hudson Institute for this very serious and timely discussion on the threats emanating from North Korea. My name is Rebecca Heinrichs. I'm a fellow here at Hudson Institute. I uh, cover a variety of national security and foreign policy issues, but I specialize in missile defense, counterproliferation, and nuclear deterrence. Um, my very prolific colleague here at Hudson, Dr. Arthur Herman, is the author of seven books. His most recent work, Douglas MacArthur, American Warrior. Got it. I have to correct that. It's eight books. Eight uh, books. Sorry, with, an, with, an, with the ninth on the way this year. So Congratulations. That's wonderful. Um, and he has several areas of expertise, including an economics and defense strategy, and recently authored an article in the Wall Street Journal entitled, There's a Way to Stop a North Korean Missile Attack, and I commend that to you. And that is a very short introduction of him. It doesn't do him justice, but for the sake of time, we'll move on. So the congressman, um, Congressman Joe Wilson, represents the good people of the 2nd District of South Carolina. Um, throughout his life, Congressman Wilson has had a tremendous passion to serve his country. He has done so in numerous capacities, including as a member of the United States Armed Forces. After serving in the U.S. Army Reserves from 1972 to 1975, he also served in the South Carolina Army National Guard. And I thought this was interesting, in the summer of 2003, uh, Congressman Wilson retired as a colonel, having served as a staff judge advocate assigned to the 218th Mechanized Infantry Brigade. At the time, he was the only active guard member serving in the Congress. I think to the Congress's credit, we have more now. Yes. Congressman Wilson uh, was elected to Congress in 2001, and he is currently serving as the chairman of the House Armed Services Committee Readiness Subcommittee. And the Readiness Subcommittee is responsible for the single largest account within DOD's budget. It oversees military readiness, training, logistics, and maintenance issues and programs. And of greatest interest to the purposes of our discussion today, Congressman Wilson has been deeply concerned about the threat emanating from North Korea and has been working to ensure the United States is prepared to handle Pyongyang's missile threats in particular. We are thrilled to have him with us today, and we look forward to his insight. And so what I'd like to happen um, in the next few minutes is um, uh, the two panelists will provide short remarks, and then we'll go ahead and launch into a conversation, and then we'll save some time at the end for your questions for those who have some. So with that, Congressman. And uh, Rebecca, thank you very much. And ladies and gentlemen, it's an honor to be here. The Hudson Institute is such a great organization. I grew up with a, uh, such an appreciation of the vision of Herman Kahn, and, and look what he's put together, and uh, extraordinary scholars, uh, including my former colleague Mike Rogers of Michigan, who is here. And so I know uh, firsthand what the Hudson Institute can do. I'm very grateful to be here. My uh, background of uh, concern about uh, North Korea uh, is that uh, the late uh, Congressman Kurt Weldon of Pennsylvania, I served on a delegation in 2003 uh, to visit Pyongyang. It was right after the removal of Saddam Hussein. Uh, and so uh, the uh, dear leader uh, had a uh, significant interest in uh, American policy uh, at that time. Uh, and so uh, I went, uh, it was bipartisan, uh, Congressman Elliot Engel of New York, myself, uh, Congressman Jeff Miller, it was a uh, extraordinary delegation uh, to visit the country. And, and while we were there, uh, it, it sadly uh, revealed to me that it was a Potemkin village. We visited what they call the film studio. It was not a film studio. It was a propaganda studio. Uh, and then the uh, magnitude of the absurdity of uh, the Potemkin village we saw is that uh, the picture you see uh, shows the magnitude of the statuary that was built 
uh, in a country where there was destitution, starvation, uh, that uh, you would uh, have such a, a profligate uh, statue is and, and just uh, shocking. Uh, and then uh, as we were driving uh, the empty streets, uh, I was in a van, and every time we'd get to a particular location, uh, the tour guides would make a real big point to point out a new building. Well, uh, I actually noticed that uh, they were trying to divert our attention from uh, propaganda billboards that were on the side of the street. And so I uh, made a real big point to uh, to get a, uh, a picture of this. And uh, many of us uh, of age here remember in every communist country uh, that propaganda billboards exhorting uh, absurdities uh, was the norm. Uh, thank goodness um, uh, now with the liberation of dozens of countries, that's not the case, but it still is in Pyongyang. So I brought that. Uh, and so that gave me a personal interest uh, in the uh, situation. And then uh, flash forward to um, this year, in February, I've introduced a resolution, 107 co-sponsors, and, and it's bipartisan, uh, with Chairman Ed Royce of the Foreign Affairs Committee, Ranking Member Elliot Engel, uh, Jerry Connolly, who's the uh, uh, co-chairman of the Korea Caucus. Uh, we have um, uh, such uh, wonderful people who are on this particular resolution, um, and uh, it's dated uh, just last month, February, uh, it, uh, the different citations, uh, different sections indicate different threats uh, to uh, our uh, allies of South Korea, to the people of South Korea, to the people of Japan, uh, to uh, American military forces, and uh, obviously with ICBM development uh, to the people of the United States. Uh, and uh, I could almost change uh, the sections every day uh, because within the last two weeks, how horrifying uh, that there have been uh, missile testing uh, by a military unit of the uh, North Korean Army, uh, which specifically has the duty of attacking U.S. military facilities and uh, American forces in Japan, uh, and they've been testing uh, their missiles um, within uh, 200 miles of the coast of Japan. Uh, what, what a threat. Uh, this needs to be addressed, and I'm uh, really encouraged, though, uh, with uh, Secretary Tillerson. Again, so much has changed just in the past um, uh, week. Uh, Secretary Tillerson has made it very clear uh, that the United States uh, is going to adopt a policy uh, which includes all of the above to address uh, the issue and the threat of North Korea to the people of South Korea, uh, to its own citizens, uh, and the people of Japan and the United States. And so I'm grateful to be here and uh, look forward to the discussion. Um, I'm also delighted to be here and delighted to have a nice large audience uh, for this topic, uh, an audience which I think appreciates, as all of us have now, the degree to which North Korea's missile program, combined with its nuclear weapons program, poses an increasingly urgent threat, uh, not just to the United States, but to peace in Asia, and I could even sort of say perhaps uh, the future the future of uh, stability and prosperity in uh, East Asia at the same time. Um, we have, I think now with North Korea, we face what is perhaps the number one uh, national security priority for this new administration. And I think the way in which the Trump administration is going to handle the North Korea case, I think, is something that will uh, be a test of its ability to handle foreign policy and national security issues coming right out of the gate uh, in, just here in the first hundred days of the of the administration. Um, 
Rebecca has mentioned my article, which ran in the Wall Street Journal on Monday. Again, timing is everything, and it's, I think has worked out well to have that piece out. I want to say some words about it at the end of my remarks uh, to summarize it for those of you who have not read it, uh, for the larger issues about the technologies involved. I can commend to you the article as a way to go forward. On the more technical aspects of it, I'm happy to have my two technical advisors here, Dr. Len Cavaney and Dr. Stephen Piper, uh, who will be able to answer the questions I can't answer in the course of this. But before I talk about the article and about the idea of how we prevent, in the short term, uh, a North Korean missile threat, I think it's important for us just to have a quick look at why North Korea is such a threat and why it is a challenge that has to be dealt with and dealt with, I think, in the end, decisively. Of course, uh, a missile program that could deliver nuclear weapons on its neighbors or even on U.S. bases or on uh, possibly even U.S. territories, even reaching possibly Hawaii and Alaska uh, in the next couple of years is definitely a threat to be dealt with and is, is, a, is, is a severe uh, a challenge to United States policy and to being able to preserve peace and stability in the region. But let's keep in mind that the nuclear, that the nuclear and missile threat is only one of the threats that North Korea poses, threats that make dealing with North Korea in a larger context of American foreign policy, I think, both essential but also complicated. In addition to the nuclear missile threat, we also have, at the same time, North Korea's military threat, which we must not forget about. That is a country which has been, mo been militarized to the nth degree, as well as being a totalitarian society. A population of 26 million, and yet they have the fourth largest army in the world. The fourth largest army in the world. Uh, and that does not include the numbers that include paramilitary groups and units that could be organized and mobilized in the case of war. Here, numbers in the num numbers up to 6 million uh, males who could be put to work in the, in the case of a conflict here. All poised on the border, all poised for an all-out war on the, in the Korean, Korean Peninsula. That, if it were to take place and if it were to happen, would turn the Korean Peninsula into a charnel house in a very short period of time. Uh, we also have, two the other threat, the, th the third threat besides the military and the nuclear missile threat that K North Korea poses, we have the, uh, what I will call the geopolitical threat. And that is, is that the North Korea's nuclear technologies are technologies that other rogue nations would love to get their hands on and have. Uh, there's every reason to believe that North Korean nuclear technology has reached, for example, Iran, has reached other countries interested in building nuclear weapons. Uh, the proliferation problem, I think, has been, has been is, is not as severe as it once was and has been in the past, but it is still a decisive risk that we run if we don't deal with the North Korean threat and North Korean challenge in a timely and in, and in a decisive way. Uh, this is one in which allowing a rogue nation to get away with having a nuclear missile program and a ballistic missile program as we've done, sets a very, very bad example for the future uh, and for the United States as a, as, as, a, as a foreign policy leader. And then, there'll be the four, then there's the fourth one, the fourth challenge, what I would call the strategic threat. And that is the degree to which 
North Korea's disruptive actions and behavior in the Korean Peninsula helps to serve the larger strategic interests of one country and one country alone, and that is China. Uh, the degree to which China has allowed the North Korean ulcer to fester and to grow and to become now an urgent problem speaks volumes both for the degree to which China has failed to act as it has been required to do so and been asked to do so in the six in the six party talks that have watched over the nuclear program, the missile program through this period of time. But also I think it's important to realize anyone could argue that it also advances China's larger strategic interests. To have diversions taking place in dealing with the North Korea and its issues of nuclear weapons and, and missiles away from China's own larger strategic ambitions in East Asia uh, and in the Indo-Pacific region as a whole. For the longest time I have argued that the route to solving the problem in Pyongyang runs through Beijing. That not enough pressure has been brought to bear on China to finally rein in its last remaining pay, uh, uh, client state and to force North Korea to adhere to some level of civilized international law and behavior. Um, but I am also now beginning to believe that, this, that the reverse is also true, that it is possible that the road to Beijing and of learning to confront and deal with the China challenge may run through Pyongyang. That in other words, that finding a robust and a, a, a decisive solution in dealing with North Korea and reining in its programs uh, and, and, and reining in its threat that it poses to its neighbors may be, may provide a means by which we begin to deal with the larger challenge that China now poses to the United States and to uh, Korea's, and, and to the Korean Peninsula as well as the rest of East Asia going forward uh, in the future. And so I think that the issue of North Korea, the issue of China are intertwined and in dealing with the immediate problem of North Korea's nuclear missile threat may open the door, I'm convinced, to finding ways to dealing with the larger question of, of how we deal with China's new strategic ambitions in the Indo-Pacific region. Thank you. Um, did you. Did you have something you wanted to say? No, I'm, I'm ready for you. Okay, great. <laughs> um, well, Congressman, um, over the past, as you've been watching this issue, you receive all of the briefings. Uh, now you're chairman of the Readiness Subcommittee. Um, how have you seen uh, a change in North Korea's missile program over the years as it relates to the policy of the previous administration, for instance? So the last administration, Barack Obama, had a policy of what he called strategic patience with North Korea, which essentially meant let's do nothing, sort of sit and wait, and we'll pass UN Security Council resolutions. Of course, they didn't have the effect that they were intended to because China didn't cooperate and make sure that they were enforced properly. Um, and now President Trump has sort of been getting, um, been given a hard time in the press because his Secretary of State, uh, Rex Tillerson, recently said that all options were on the table in dealing with North Korea. Um, and, and sort of the, the Trump administration has been accused of, of um, escalating the situation with that kind of rhetoric. Um, can, you, can you speak to that, the difference between how the two administrations are dealing with it, and, and did, did strategic patience work in slowing down North Korea's missile program? And, and, uh, Rebecca, clearly it did not. Uh, strategic uh, patience, benign neglect, uh, it, uh, it only uh, encouraged uh, the dictatorship uh, to proceed uh, with uh, missile development, as we've seen 
uh, with the miniaturization of nuclear capability. Uh, over and over we see examples. Uh, and uh, additionally, uh, Arthur's brought up so many great points, uh, and I did want to comment on each one, amen. <laughs> uh, and that is that uh, the uh, threat of cyber conflict uh, and uh, existent uh, against our country. So over and over, and I, I'm really grateful uh, with uh, Secretary of State uh, Rex Tillerson, uh, his uh, restatement of policy, uh, going to Beijing and making it very clear that uh, all of the above uh, policies are in effect. Uh, equally, I'm very grateful that the former governor of South Carolina, now uh, UN Ambassador Nikki Haley, also restated uh, over the weekend uh, that uh, all of the above uh, is in place. Uh, and uh, with that, uh, the uh, dictatorship uh, in Pyongyang needs to understand that uh, we, uh, we have a, a new president, uh, Donald Trump, who uh, takes seriously the threat to the American um, people. Uh, the ability of having an ICBM that could strike uh, uh, virtually indiscriminately uh, uh, the West Coast, uh, that people may point out, well, it can't be precise. Uh, hey, uh, we, we consider everybody from San Diego to, uh, to uh, Washington State, uh, very uh, Seattle, uh, very important people. Uh, and, uh, and we even appreciate our uh, Hawaii and Alaska and uh, our uh, Pacific territories. Bottom line, uh, we have a president who uh, I believe will be acting and uh, with the advice uh, of his military. Uh, and we have um, and such uh, a, an extraordinary uh, bond and relationship uh, with the Republic of Korea, the military. And then it was very uh, instructive, too, uh, that um, the first uh, uh, overseas um, uh, uh, Prime Minister was uh, Prime Minister Abe of uh, Japan to visit uh, Mar-a-Lago. Uh, that's an indication of uh, a, a warm relationship. And uh, what, what extraordinary country. I do have to point out that uh, on my visits, um, my one visit to North Korea, but multiple visits to the DMZ and to South Korea, uh, people need to visit. Uh, there's never been a more classic uh, example of uh, contrast between the failure and destitution of the uh, DPRK and then the extraordinary uh, success of uh, ROK uh, to, uh, in 1960, to have a per capita income of $79, uh, today nearly $30,000, one of the wealthiest countries on earth. What a success story, and we need to do all we can uh, to um, protect the people of South Korea and then advance, hopefully, the liberation uh, or, or reopening. Um, it doesn't even need to be a regime, regime change so long as uh, the people of North Korea have opportunity. I think it's, it's uh, wonderful in your resolution you um, did such a nice job of laying out the threat in, in, you know, of course, using open source information that anybody can access, but really laying out the quotes from previous NORTHCOM commanders, yes. et cetera, about the capabilities of North Korea. And I think that that has been sort of a, one of the sources of confusion that some people have about, you know, perhaps North Korea isn't something we should worry about because they don't have the capability. But as you point out in your resolution, previous NORTHCOM commanders have said, that, that through modeling especially, that we do believe that North Korea does have the capability, although it may be unreliable. And unreliable just means it might not hit precisely where it wants to hit. They might not get it off the first time, but perhaps the second time. Um, that they do, uh, however unreliable, that they could have the capability to deliver an intercontinental ballistic missile armed with a nuclear warhead that could span the United States. And you know, spanning the United States means if it's on a mobile missile, they could pop perhaps 
even reach it to the, the middle to the east coast of the United States as well. Um, and, and, and when they talk about, uh, they, they have to use modeling because we haven't yet seen North Korea as missiles re-enter the atmosphere. We've seen them test satellites, and that technology, of course, is directly related to the capability to deliver an ICBM. And, and I'm glad you mentioned satellite. The American people need to know this, uh, that uh, in February last year, uh, North Korea actually successfully launched a satellite. Uh, I, I have to tell you that I had read it and just kept on going. Uh, but no, that, that's a crucial part of developing an ICBM to strike anywhere in the United States. Uh, and, and so it's a, a clear and present danger that needs to be addressed. That's exactly right, sir. Um, and, I, and I think that it, it, you know, to, the more the American people understand it, the more they understand, you know, it, you're, if, if every time you see North Korea have uh, a test that where the missile didn't go as far as what they said they were, or perhaps it, the, the third stage didn't go off and the second stage, that rather than looking at it as a failure, we can look at it as though these folks are persistent and they are determined to develop the capability to threaten the United States with a nuclear weapon. Um, Arthur, I wanted to um, touch a little bit again on the China-North Korea connection. Um, China has really opposed the United States deploying the THAAD battery to, to South Korea. Um, and yet, this administration did it anyway. Um, so far, China's still okay, even though they protested and said at this point um, they've threatened even um, to, to attack the THAAD battery. Can you talk a little bit about um, other things, because uh, I thought it was interesting how you, how you phrased it, we need to worry about the North Korean threat and then perhaps there'll be an opportunity to deal with China as well. Um, can you talk a little bit about what the United States needs to do to expand missile defense to protect the Republic of Korea and the United States, even though China objects to, to such deployments? Yeah, there, there's been plenty of uh, saber rattling from China uh, over the last several weeks, and, and not just because of the issues about Fed and South Korea as well, but also of what's unfolding in the South China Sea, which is another one of the large issues. It's obviously not part of our topic uh, today, but it is relevant in the sense that from the Chinese standpoint, from the point of view of where, where, where Beijing's leadership sits, it is all part of one larger strategic whole. They do think about these things as being in their own minds linked and connected in important ways. What you've got here, and I want to commend two things. I want to commend, first of all, the, the, the legislation resolution that, that the congressman has sponsored and has found. How many co-sponsors do you have now? 107. 107 co-sponsors. Uh, talk about a bipartisan issue. Yes. This is definitely it of the threat, the imminent threat, that North Korea's uh, missile program poses and, and, and challenges. The other... A uh, decision I want to commend is the decision to install THAAD in South Korea. And in that sense, standing up to China's threats and standing up to its attempts to intimidate, to halt that. I think THAAD is something which, from, from, for South Korea, is obviously, I think, an important and vital anti-ballistic missile system to be installed. But I think it's also important to realize that, uh, and we were just talking about this, uh, Rebecca, you know this from the, the, your long experience working in missile defense issues, uh, about the technologies that are involved and how you approach these issues from an operational as well as strategic point of view, that there is no silver bullet. No one system is going to work uh, to, to deter all the possible threats, all deal with all the possible scenarios with which North Korea can threaten its neighbors or threaten U.S. forces. And this is one of the things we must bear in mind, 
The North Korean nuclear weapons threat has two aspects. One is, of course, blackmail its neighbors and to use it as a threat in order to squeeze more concessions out of the civilized community, and I'm going to use that term here, the civilized world community uh, to uh, relax sanctions and to allow the resources to flow to the North Korean leadership to keep it in power. But there's also a second aspect, and that is that it sees its nuclear deterrent as a way to deal with a U.S.-South Korean invasion in the case of a conventional conflict. They see this as a way in which they can stop and halt and disrupt U.S. and South Korean forces in the case of a conventional war. That if you look at all the range of scenarios in which nuclear weapons could be applied, you need a, a, a range of you need a large, wide-ranging arsenal. The reason that I wrote the op-ed about a boost phase intercept. In other words, of the idea of intercepting missiles just as they're in the boost phase, as they're basically left the launching pad, to put it in layman's terms, and being able to do that using uh, conventional anti-missile missiles, hypervelocity missiles, fired from UAV unmanned platforms, stationed at 55,000 feet off of the North Korean coast, um, these are not, as I explained in the article, these are not, this isn't, you know, Buck Rogers technology or even Star Wars, Reagan era Star Wars technology. This technology exists today. It's just a process of bringing it together into a single system, to a single package. That one of the advantages with this is, is that number one, you can, you kill the missile. You're able to kill a missile while it's still in North Korean territory before it reaches its descent phase and re-enters the atmosphere, as would be the case with, for example, an intermediate ballistic missile attack, as THAAD would have to do, or Aegis's Shore, the other system that Japan currently uses as a means to protect itself from that, from that uh, a ballistic missile threat from North Korea. But it also contains another important advantage. This gets to your question about China. And that is that this is a system, as you'll see from the article, and we can answer questions about it later, which really works only against the North Korean missile threat. That for China, for China's missile deterrence uh, threats, launches from China are too far away, to put it in simplistic terms, for a boost phase intercept UAV system of the kind I described to work. Now, this has a huge diplomatic advantage. The problem with that has been that China precisely sees that as lessening its missile deterrence, which is why it's you know, gotten all excited and hot and bothered about THAAD being installed. Uh, the boost phase intercept system is one in which China can't complain, because it's not directed at China. It's directed at one nation and one nation only, North Korea. And of course, that's, I, I would predict, um, from studying this issue for a while, that that won't stop China from complaining about it. <laughs> it certainly won't, but it, but it, but it, drains, away, it drains away any kind of, uh, any sort of realistic justification for for what's underway there, and reminds them as well that, in the end, that the real solution to what's happening in North Korea has to be China stepping up and dealing with the problem at, its, at the root level. And I would just point out that uh, the PRC actually, in some of their academic writings, have even been explicit to admit that what they, uh, uh, attack that they recommend taking, that the government recommend taking, is to oppose U.S. missile defense deployments, even with our allies, because it has worked so well with Russia, vis-a-vis -vis Europe. 
And so it's more of a geopolitical chess piece and it is really a legitimate um, threat. And therefore, I think it's wise that Secretary Mattis um, simply just disregarded the objections and said, no, we need that and went ahead and just deployed. No question. No question. You're right. And and the reason the secretary made that so clear, because it's not anti-China, as uh, was indicated, this is to protect the people of the United States and uh, in cooperation with our Korean allies. And uh, and, and in the resolution, we uh, commend the placement of that. We also call on the People's Republic to uh, use its influence uh, on Pyongyang. Uh, and uh, I look at this, uh, actually, personally, my dad served in the Flying Tigers in World War II in Kunming, China. So I grew up with a great uh, affection of the people of China. We want them to keep succeeding in a positive way. Uh, and a way to do that is to have stability on the Korean Peninsula. I think that's a great, great point. Um, and then I did want to um, uh, give you the opportunity, um, Congressman, to talk a little bit about um, what, what we have seen, missile defense generally, because in your resolution you talk about not just one particular um, component of the missile defense system, but an entire layered ballistic missile mm-hmm. defense system, and that, that that must be part of the solution that the United States must take. Um, the Obama administration, its first year in office, uh, cut the Missile Defense Agency's budget significantly, and it cut the portion of the Missile Defense Program that protects the United States homeland, the ground-based mid-course defense system, in half. Um, and so that's something that the United States has been trying to play catch-up um, with now. Um, could, you, to, could you talk a little bit about just the importance of, I mean, this, this administration is taking a different take. It's, it, it wants the homeland to be protected. Of course, our allies and our deployed forces must be protected as well, but not at the expense of the American people in the U.S. homeland. Um, and, and actually, the redundancy is helpful and, and needs to be done. Uh, and, and we're not alone. Uh, Israel with uh, uh, Arrow Missile Defense System, uh, David Sling, uh, the uh, the Iron Dome. Uh, every and uh, any uh, missile defense system uh, should be uh, employed for the benefit of the people of South Korea, for the benefit of Japan, for the benefit of uh, American forces and the United States itself. And so over and over, and, and uh, again, it's really sad uh, what you cited about the prior administration's uh, cutback uh, at a time uh, as we have uh, rising... Um, threats, and, and of course, uh, to me, uh, it, uh, it defies uh, peace through strength. That's how you win. Uh, we've learned that uh, very significantly uh, within the lifetime of everyone here, of peace through strength. That's what should be done. And then we understand that uh, strategic patience could actually lead to the uh, extraordinary level of instability we have today. Uh, and, and so uh, I'm just, again, so pleased uh, with the leadership of President Trump, uh, Rex Tillerson, Nikki Haley. Uh, we've had, uh, and then uh, with uh, General Jim Mattis, the Secretary of Defense, um, we have extraordinary leadership uh, to protect the American people and to protect our allies of South Korea. I would add one thing, just in the interest of, of bipartisanship from that point of view, is that it wasn't just the Obama administration who's made a mess of the North Korea, dealing with North Korea. The Bush administration did as well, and the nuclear program really became a serious problem as a result of some bad decisions that were made by the Bush National Security Council uh, and that allowed that problem to fester and to grow to where it is now. I think what we have to say is is that what's needed in dealing with North Korea is a new paradigm, a new way of dealing with this problem because 
past administrations, their approaches to it, whether you're talking about the six-party talks or whether you're talking about the balance between sanctions and inspections and getting North Korea to agree to resolutions uh, in the, national, in the, in the security, UN Security Council, which will never uphold and never adhere to, uh, a new paradigm is needed. And I think an opportunity now exists for the new administration to bring about that new paradigm. I'm encouraged by Tillerson's statements about this, and I'm looking forward to more follow-through on their part. Certainly, the Trump administration is a new kind of, of administration. So um, I'm looking forward as well to some uh, sort of unconventional thinking in terms of dealing with the problem that has persisted over the years with North Korea. Um, and I, I did want to make the point, too, about that, that GMD system. Uh, you know, the Obama administration uh, didn't, didn't really advertise the big cuts it made. But then at, at one point, the threats from North Korea started looking very, very serious. And so we had um, the Secretary of State at the time came out and said, now we're going to be increasing the number of interceptors in response to the threat. But the increase in the number of interceptors up to 44 really was that was the Bush administration's plan, and that was what the interceptors that, that the Obama administration cut. So um, we're, so, we're still playing catch-up. We're still playing catch-up. And even that 44 that's planned um, is still not going to be enough if, if the threat from North Korea continues on the trajectory um, that it is, um, increasing the number. Um, and then, of course, you know, if we pull an interceptor out of the ground to test it or to refurb it, that means that we're under the 44 limit. So we need to have more interceptors in place. Um, I would consider that low-hanging fruit an opportunity for some bipartisanship to, to increase um, uh, the number of interceptors for our homeland missile defense system. And then, sir, if I may, um, ask you one more question, and then we'll turn it over to the audience for your questions. Um, do you, do you think um, the budget has, the first Trump administration budget has come out, it's had some sort of some mixed reviews, but on the positive side, it does um, get rid of sequester, um, or it's above the sequester amount, the, the Budget Control Act. Um, can you talk from a readiness perspective of just how, um, how the BCA has harmed readiness and, and what we can look forward to now with moving beyond that? And Rebecca, thank you very much. I'm really grateful to be the uh, subcommittee chairman on readiness of the House Armed Services Committee. We've had testimony in just the past month uh, from uh, the leading personnel <coughs> and generals of uh, readiness, uh, in charge of readiness, the U.S. Army. We last week had uh, representatives from the U.S. Navy, uh, three extraordinary admirals. It was very inspiring. And then this week we'll have a presentation by the Air Force. Over and over we see uh, that um, because of the uh, sequester, the uh, Budget Control Act, the uh, reduction in uh, funding and capability to maintain our equipment, to properly train. That concerns me so much. We have uh, talented young people who are serving our country who need to have proper flight hours so that they can properly uh, protect themselves and protect our country. They've been cut back uh, dramatically, putting them at risk. Uh, over and over, uh, readiness in terms of equipment. Uh, we've had to cannibalize equipment from different uh, military facilities to, go to even museums uh, to go to um, uh, different uh, aircraft of our country. Uh, so the bottom line is that uh, we're beginning a, um, a new trajectory, uh, and, and I'm really thrilled with the uh, leadership of Secretary Jim Mattis uh, that uh, we will be uh, rebuilding our military, it will be strengthening our military, and we will achieve, again, peace through strength, uh, rather than strategic patience or whatever that was. Uh, and so I, I'm, I'm very, very pleased about the change, uh, which is going to be beneficial to the American public and, and our allies.
right here, sir? There will be a microphone. Yes, there'll be a microphone. You could just state where you're from and your name. That'd be very helpful. Ralph Winnie with the Eurasia Center. I was wondering if the panelists could discuss the issue of cyber war, uh, which Tillerson mentioned uh, in his uh, remarks uh, when he was overseas, and how that might impact the ability to at least stall the ability of the North Koreans to uh, develop uh, nuclear weapons. Well, I'm, I'm really grateful. I uh, have formally uh, just concluded being chairman of the Emerging Threats and Capabilities Subcommittee, and. Uh, had jurisdiction of cyber preparedness, and uh, I, I want to commend uh, every level of the United States government uh, uh, that uh, there are now initiatives that uh, we have not had, but it, uh, and this uh, actually originated, lightning is going to strike, under the prior administration, so I want to give them credit uh, that um, the U.S. Army Cyber Command to be located at Fort Gordon, South Carolina, uh, Georgia. Uh, we've got um, different uh, facilities, NSA, uh, uh, every effort is being made to uh, really uh, improve our capabilities to defend the American people, defend our allies uh, against cyber uh, intrusions and uh, disruption, um, whether it be the uh, electrical grid of the United States, the communications uh, grid. We've already seen the attack uh, by uh, DPRK on Sony. Um, we, uh, sadly, uh, from different uh, assaults and attacks millions of times a day, uh, by state actors and uh, private and uh, criminal uh, gangs, too. Uh, we, we've got um, a remarkable challenge that can be and I believe will be addressed. I'm going to say this about the issue that you, in specific, I, I totally agree with Congressman his point about the emergence of the cyber domain has been probably the single most important change on the, uh, in the battle space in the last decade and a half, and the United States is, I think, uh, I've been writing about it for more than seven years, saying we need to get involved with it. I think we're now finally, finally stepping up to deal with that problem. But the issue you specifically raised, which was the issue of, let's call it a cyber deterrence, is a means by which cyber attacks from the United States could slow down missile launches, missile developments. I'm, in my mind, this is a finger in the dike solution. It's very good in a temporary way uh, but it's not going to be a way in which we stop either nuclear this nuclear program or the missile program from continuing to advance ahead. You need more robust measures than just being able to occasionally shut them down or even even force them to to shift to new systems as uh, as a way in which to way in which to get their get their programs up and going. Um, good short-term solution, but a much better one would be good missile defense. And, and I think you were mar remarking, Rebecca, earlier, the fact is is that the, the, the stories about these, uh, the, the New York Times article that came out about this, the issue of cyber deterrence and having to use it because the missile defense programs are so weak. Well, there's a reason why those missile defense programs were so weak, and that was the funding was slashed. I, I, on, on that particular article, there was an article, I believe it was the New York Times, that um, the Obama administration claimed that the missile defense, the Homeland Missile Defense System, um, was so unreliable that it had to go with the cyber option. Um, you know, I think that that's, uh, one, I do think our GMD system is capable of handling the current threat from North Korea. Um, where it is weak, it's only weak because the Obama administration sort of, uh, you know, 
yanked its funding around, cut it, and then you know increased it, and then decreased it again. Um, and so, you know, there, there's a reason. There's a reason that that would be a problem. Well, we have to fall back on the cyber deterrence. Yeah. Another question over here. Yes, sir. I'm a Peter Humphrey, an intel analyst and a former diplomat. A little skeptical about missile defense. Whenever I've been allowed to peek under the blanket, it's something like two-thirds effective in controlled conditions and only one-third effective in actual battlefield situations. Um, I think North Koreans will never use their nuclear weapons because the blowback is 100% guaranteed. There are two far bigger threats that none of us are dealing with. That is the collective might of the biochem weapons, and the 200,000 artillery pieces, which can do everything against South Korea that those, you know, the nuclear weapons that we fear. Uh, we're doing absolutely nothing there. And, and um, so, I, you know, I've got to ask the question, if, if we do look at regime change as, as a policy option, would it be possible to go to China right now and say, you know, if you guys don't cross the Yalu and Tumen rivers, we will do the following things. We will promise not to move any American forces north of the 38th, and we will set up massive refugee camps along the Yalu and Tumen refers to relieve your concern about refugees flocking to Manchuria. Could we make those two promises quietly to China to try and circumvent what I view as the greater threat of China coming to the aid of its falling Kim family brethren? I appreciate you bringing this up because I've actually uh, shouldn't lose sleep, but I do. Uh, when I found out about the uh, ten to twelve thousand uh, artillery pieces that are directed at Seoul with chemical and biological uh, capability, we're talking about twenty-six million people uh, at, at risk. Uh, it's almost inconceivable, uh, and, and just one round, uh, what could be done? So I, I share that concern, uh, and I um, I've actually been to Beijing where I've seen uh, how concerned. Uh, the government is there. Uh, every uh, embassy in Beijing has a double fence around it, uh, uh, including the embassy of the Republic of Cuba, can you imagine? But there's a double fence uh, to avoid uh, and try to stop um, uh, people fleeing North Korea from uh, jumping over a fence into uh, this jurisdiction of another country. Uh, um, but uh, So that that's a real concern, and, and what you uh, indicated is a um, a really interesting uh, uh, situation, and I think the reason we're talking about uh, ICBMs is because this is so recent. Uh, but indeed, uh, the threats that you have identified uh, have, uh, are just so horrifying uh, uh, to me, to the people of uh, the extraordinary people of uh, South Korea. Yeah. I, I like I commend your idea. It's a genius, um, striking a bargain with China. I just don't see China going for it. Uh, number one, I don't think they believe us. By sort of saying we would, we were going to take those kinds of steps. I'm sure, I'm sure the leadership, starting with President Xi, see the whole issue of North Korea as basically, in one way or another, a, a way to, as a threat to China. Um, I don't see them buying the idea of the refugee camps either. The fact is, is that the current situation, the status quo, on the Korean Peninsula works to China's advantage, and there's no reason for them to change the direction of what's taking place in any kind of way. Other kinds of points of pressure have to be brought to bear on China, I believe, before we begin to sort of see a long-term definitive solution to this problem. In the meantime, missile defense is part of a, a, a panoply 
of countermeasures by which we try to contain the threat that North Korea and its leadership pose right now. And, and if I may just, um, to, to your point about whether or not hit-to-kill technology works, which is the technology that our missile defense systems rely, I mean, you know, we um, the interceptor goes up and the kill vehicle detaches and locks onto the warhead that it's going to hit and destroys it um, with force. So that's hit-to-kill technology. Um, the... The U.S. and Japan um, has the cooperative program with the SM-3 um, Aegis weapon system. Um, recently, we had a successful intercept. The, the THAAD um, program has successfully um, intercepted many uh, ballistic missiles, um, which is why it's the South Koreans... The South Korea, it doesn't make any sense to say that the system doesn't work or isn't going to serve some um, utility um, to have all these allies who are now clamoring for it. There is no ideological objection on their part. They just see that it works and they want it. Um, the GMD system, I've seen it myself, intercept um, missiles in, in test scenarios. Iron Dome. The Iron Dome weapon system in real time. Well, I'll, I'll tell you what, uh, uh, that one-third means something to the people on the ground. And, um, and the systems are only going to improve over time. Um, so there, there are hit-to-kill technology deniers that, that are still out there, but they're very few in number now. This um, missile defense has a large bipartisan following now. Um, and now it just depends on at what speed we're going to, to, to um, push these systems forward and which ones we're going to prioritize. Um, for me, it's those that are most critical to our allies, where we have critical um, cooperative agreements, and, of course, the protection of the American people, the U.S. homeland. Um, so again, um, the record proves itself. The uh, multiple science review boards have have shown that um, the system does work and that it does serve a purpose. And again, it's not the silver bullet. Um, you know, it's a it's that's a straw man argument. I think to say that those of us who advocate for missile defense think that we're just going to solve it with missile defense. It's a tool in our toolbox. We need it. It deters the enemy, and should deterrence fail, um, then hopefully we'll have a defense uh, of the innocent people. Um, who are targets of these missiles. There's another, we'll come, we'll come over, the back of the room over here. Uh, Henry Hecker, retired government. I, I wondered, is there a need to prevent North Korean vessels uh, from reaching the Eastern Pacific where they could launch a missile and strike the homeland? Have we reached a point where this could occur and how can we prevent it? Uh, World War II, you know, there's always limits on territory. Uh, no vessels, uh, enemy vessels or non-neutral vessels could enter our certain, you know, jurisdiction. And Britain had this area to defend their own country. Uh, why not have something like that to defend our nation? I know we have a regular limit on, you know, how far the international limit would go uh, from our shore. But this is another situation. Uh, I also wondered, is it time to consider a blockade in North Korea? Uh, already, we look at vessels coming from North Korea that might contain, you know, components, nuclear weapons, and they're forbidden from entering uh, the international space uh, to, to, you know, permit a shipment to some other nation. Um, what are your suggestions? I would tell you, with your background, you're describing uh, what Secretary Tillerson, what uh, Ambassador Haley uh, has, has indicated, and that is all the above. So everything that you've mentioned, uh, I'm confident, uh, is being looked at as what would be most productive uh, to protect uh, the people of South Korea uh, and the United States. Yeah, and I, I think there's many steps that have been taken for the interception and interdiction of, of North ships 
coming from North Korea for the kinds of technology involved. There is, in effect, a de facto blockade now. But there's one problem. That there's one big place where the blockade can't go, and that's along the border with China. Uh, and as long as North Korea has access to, to and from, right, transportation networks with China, there's really going to be very, very difficult to find some kind of way to truly isolate the North Korean regime in the way in which one would want to do so to really render them completely isolated and completely ineffective in terms of continuing to build and supply their military or continue their nuclear and missile programs. Great. Lady in the suit here, right there. Yeah. Right there, yeah. Um, Amanda Swanson, I'm a defense policy graduate student at GW. I'm curious, what role, if any, can we expect Russia to play in the Korea situation, be it either through mitigating or even perhaps escalating what we're seeing going on? Well, Russia's been part of the six-party talks from the very beginning in the 1990s, uh, and they sit and listen politely to the discussion. They certainly don't want to have a you know, nuclear war or even a less, a less of a nuclear war, a, a full-out conventional conflict taking place in the Korean Peninsula. It's not good, it's not good news for them. Um, and the, the, pro the possibility of a North Korean missile program that begins to reach uh, intercontinental, uh, intercontinental uh, distances poses another problem for Russia, and that is, is that those missiles will almost certainly be passing over Russian territory. Uh, and a shoot-down will probably take place over Russian territory as well in, that, in, that, in, in those kinds of scenarios. Mm -hmm. So they've got a big stake, I think, in diffusing the conflict there and dealing with it. Um, and again, I think they need to be, uh, they need to be someone who can bring pressure to bear on China as well as North Korea to resolve this problem and to deal with it in a forthright way. And so far, that really, uh, from my knowledge of what's happened, is that that's not really, uh, taken place. And, uh, the, the key actor though is still China. And that's the one that you're going to have to deal with first and foremost. And if there's a way to get the Russians to, 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 to use some leverage on this, that would be great. And I, I was happy to let Arthur answer that question because as an elected official, I shouldn't let you know, but I've been wrong. Uh, and that is, <laughs> uh, I was so hoping the Russian Federation uh, would advance uh, as a, a very valued part of the world community, uh, working very closely uh, and not antithetically with um, NATO. Uh, and things have not developed as I had hoped And uh, on visits to Russia where I saw just uh, extraordinary people, uh, extraordinary culture. Uh, it's become so inward, which is, uh, again, so sad to me because what a great uh, future that uh, country could have if it was part, uh, truly, of the world community. Yeah. And, and I would just add, too, I think it's a great question. Um, one of the failures, I think, of the not just the last administration but the, the previous one as well is that um, it, we looked at one part of the world you know, singularly, and then we didn't consider the effects on the rest in some cases, or at least not to the extent that we should have. Um, and you know, when it comes to our policy in dealing with North Korea and China, the Russians are watching. 
the Russians are watching. And so, um, you know, I always try to remind people what we do with Russia and Eastern European or in European missile defense and the protection of NATO vis-a-vis Russia. The Chinese are watching in terms of how, how they should push back on the United States and how we're going to contain the threat of North Korea and protect our allies there. So you, you can't really separate the two because everybody's watching. And, and, and so the credibility of the United States is at stake here. Um, so I think what we do um, regarding North Korea and the protection of our allies and troops that are deployed in South Korea and the protection of the United States certainly will have an effect on U.S.-Russia policy um, as well. And look, let's, let's face it. Neither Russia nor China has wants to see missile defense led by the United States succeed because missile, effective missile defense poses a direct threat to their own nuclear deterrent. Um, and that means two things. One is, is that you're gonna have, if you're going to go the missile defense route, you're going to have to go it in ways that you're not going <laughs> to, you're not going to get support. Uh, you're not going to have a cheering squad uh, coming out of Russia and China. That's number one. But number two, it, and this actually goes to your point, and that is, is that missile defense has to be only one part of a larger solution that gets the other key actors in the region, particularly China, to go along. Missile defense is a, in the end, a midterm. Near term, I think the, the boost phase intercept program that I talked about in my op-ed is one that is even better in terms of the midterm, but the long-term solution is dealing with North Korea in a holistic and in a comprehensive way. And, and, and I appreciate Rebecca bringing up uh, how it is interconnected with uh, the European Reassurance Initiative. This is being proactive uh, to provide for a uh, level of stability which is beneficial for everyone. Uh, and then the uh, American uh, NATO facilities at uh, MK Air Base in Romania, Novo Selo in Bulgaria. Uh, th- this is so mutually advantageous, and, and that's why you don't, uh, we haven't seen uh, uh, the level of tension that is uh, occurring in uh, Northeast Asia as compared uh, to Europe, because uh, I-, I believe that uh, NATO is uh, uh, showing resolve. Mm-hmm. That's right. Um, we might have time for one very quick question over here um, to the congressman. Thank you. <clears throat> Rex Wimpen, Northern Resource. From a certain perspective, uh, this is simply a, a geostrategic issue of China attempting to push out beyond the first island chain, uh, et cetera. So if China is part of the solution, uh, or perhaps is the solution, uh, <clears throat> To what extent would they be willing to go along uh, with a carrot approach? Uh, and if not, don't we? Uh, or are you suggesting a stick approach? In other words, significant economic sanctions, whether based upon counterterrorism statutes or, or other justifications. And if you're not, then what are you proposing, gentlemen? Thank you. Back again, all the above, and and I, um, I'm really hoping uh, we did see. Uh, where China has uh, cut off uh, the uh, purchase of coal uh, from North Korea. Uh, that's, I think, a step at, uh, at, at least one. Uh, and then uh, in the resolution, we do provide for uh, strengthening sanctions. Uh, I think that could include uh, sanctions against Chinese companies that do business in North Korea. It could include um, the uh, level of uh, banking uh, that the uh, uh, North uh, Korean uh, totalitarians uh, have uh, in uh, the People's Republic uh, and freezing accounts. Uh, it, it, this over and over um, again, all the above 
uh, could include just what you indicated. Yeah, I was going to, the last word I'm going to say on this uh, topic, going directly to your point, carrot and stick. The key, the, the issue that links them all is linkage. Uh, and that China's interests elsewhere in the region, and its interests as a economic uh, power uh, and its own future stability, these are all aspects that can be brought to bear and brought into consideration with regard to making China deal, making China make North Korea behave. But the specific steps that will be involved with it, you'll just have to wait for my next Wall Street Journal op-ed. Well, okay. And hey, something to keep in mind, to me, to uh, China, North Korea is a dependency that has to be maintained. Uh, South Korea, on the other hand, um, at one time I read where 2% of uh, all persons working in China work for South Korean companies. And uh, foreign direct investment from uh, Republic of Korea into the People's Republic. Uh, and, that, and then the trade uh, between the Republic of Korea and People's Republic uh, is phenomenal, beneficial. Uh, to China. It should be mutually beneficial, but think of what trade there may be with North Korea be very limited. Well, sir, I want to thank you once again for your leadership on this issue and as chairman of the Readiness Subcommittee. Thank you. Um, thank you for being here with us. And would you join me in thanking our panelists? Thank you.